uh, continue with our study of the book of Acts today. Uh, probably uh, spend a lot of time in Acts chapter 20. So if you kind of want to get oriented, we'll probably do Acts 20. But we won't only do that. But I think that's where we're going to um, dwell. Le- or part of it anyway, not the whole chapter. Uh, let's begin with a prayer. <clears throat> I'd like to pray. Almighty God and Father, you are the source of goodness, and we and you have blessed us with your uh, revealed will and uh, word. We thank you for sending your word into the flesh to become our redeemer from uh, sin and death. And we ask that you would continually grant us your Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth and to preserve our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Now, um, we are still cruising along with our schedule here. We have talked about several, uh, I hope, interesting topics, and uh, there's a few more coming up. Uh, We still haven't done much with the the topics of healing and exorcism. That's uh, still on my plan, but not for today. We're going to do healing and exorcism. Uh, it's It's actually a pretty big part of the Gospels and even the book of Acts, but you don't see much of it later. So we'll, we'll talk about those. We'll talk about persecution and martyrdom. We haven't done that yet. And uh, uh, eventually we'll talk about evangelism and the mission of the church, also a big part of the book of Acts, and the ministry of the apostles, especially Apostle Paul. And uh, the end times, that's going to be our last week. We're going to talk about the end times in the book of Acts. Uh, what th- the theological term for that is eschatology. And uh, so those are, those are still the things that are coming up. And today, most likely today, we'll still be talking about uh, the topic of ecclesiology, although even more. We've only kind of touched on that, even though I've used the word probably every week the last three weeks. I haven't really said that much about it. Well, I guess I did when I talked a lot about the Catholicity of the church, that it's universal, that it's not uh, just for Jews. You know, it include, it's inclusive of all human beings. <laughs> so I have talked about that, the Catholic nature, small c, of the Christian church. But there's other things like the ministry, pastors, teachers, elders, bishops. How does all that work in the book of Acts and, uh, and, and actually early, early church history? Even today, what's the relevance of that? So we're going to do those things, <clears throat> and God willing. And as always, when we can, uh, we'll do Christology. Of course, all of it's about Jesus. Uh, we are Christ-centered, but uh, but okay. So where where it's best in the text, we will we'll talk about um, what we can about Jesus, his person, and his work, who he is, what he is, and uh, and what it is he has done and does do is doing. All right. So that's my reminder of our plan, uh, both today and beyond. And uh, so I did say, well, if you came in uh, a little bit later, we're going to do Acts 20. We're going to dwell in part of Acts 20, the latter, uh, latter half, starting at verse probably 17. Although, um, um, you know, just give me a moment to uh, recap a few details uh, before we do that. But if you want to flip there, uh, you might want to. Now, last time, last week, the subject matter was the Apostle Paul. What is the, he's a very prominent part of the book of Acts and the narrative of the stories. It's, we call it the Acts of the Apostles, the name of the book, but it could just as easily be called, more, maybe even more appropriately called, the Acts of Peter and especially Paul. 
Um, John is in there, a couple of Philip, the deacon is in there, Stephen, but, uh, but it really, we don't hear, I mean, the book of Acts doesn't say much about uh, Matthias, he's named, you know, Bartholomew, I mean, there's a lot of the apostles that are not really talked about, so anyway. So we did discuss Paul, who he is, what does the Bible tell us about him, um, beyond just being a figure in the book of Acts, most of your New Testament has been written by that man in terms of the number of words. And most of the New Testament is written by, by Paul. And so if you read Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians and so on, uh, you're reading the words of Paul. Uh, well, you're reading the inspired words of St. Paul. It's the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the Word of God. But, uh, but anyway, so, so knowing a bit about who he is, I think, is, is, is kind of good. Now, um, we, I talked to you about what a Pharisee is. I gave you a little bit of his biography. And then we discussed his conversion story. Um, and in there, there might have been a couple of other things. I forget. But, uh, but I'm just going to say one or two more details about him that I didn't get to say. And then, uh, and then we'll do our new thing. And uh, so he's converted. Um, the, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He's in the midst of his campaign of persecuting the church. He's a Pharisee. He's a non-Christian. And he is authorized, we learn, by the temple priests, the, the, the leading Jewish authorities, the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Uh, most likely the Sanhedrin, the, the religious authorities in Jerusalem. So he's not a lone wolf. He's not just kind of out there being a um, vigilante, but he has been authorized by the, by the high priest council in Jerusalem. Uh, to, to do what? Well, they're trying to contain um, this new movement of, of Christianity, people talking about Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah or King of the Jews. And why does the, temp, why does the Jerusalem establishment find that to be a problem? couple of reasons. One is that they're f- afraid of how the Romans are going to respond. Uh, if you live in the first century Israel, you care <laughs> about what the Romans are going to think, at least to some extent, because you are a Roman province. And the Romans are not shy about making their will known with force. Uh, they, you know, they speak with, with the tongue of iron, right? the sword. So, so, and there had been in Jerusalem um, uh, prior to and around the time of Jesus, there had been massacres uh, where Roman soldiers by the authority or the command of the Roman governor, including Pontius Pilate, had massacred. Uh, numbers of, of Jews in, in Jerusalem, and they, uh, the rulers didn't, didn't like that, and so they wanted to prevent that if they could, and so they weren't just motivated religiously, as if they hate the message of St. Paul, uh, the apostles, but rather that uh, the, they are very concerned about how this might cause riots, how this might cause, I mean, messianic teaching was not new. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, we know this. But he wasn't the first or only person to claim to be the Messiah. And, when other, and most of them you've never heard of because they were stamped out. Um, th- there is one sort of m- another major messianic person who, cl- who, who made messianic claims 
uh, after the time of Jesus, named uh, Simon. So, I mean, I'm getting a little off of Acts, but context. So, in, uh, in, the, in the first, early second century, so after the time of Jesus, we, already, we have another Messianic claimant in Jerusalem, in Israel, named Simon, and he's called the son of the star, so his, his Hebrew name would be Simon Bar Kokhba. So if you ever do any kind of reading about early church, you might hear about the revolution of Simon Bar Kokhba, son of the star. And the Romans, he tried to lead a political revolt. And he had followers, as, uh, as people that uh, followed him as the promised one, the deliverer, because the interpretation was this would be a, a delivery from Rome. And... Uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> the Romans stamped them out. They'd already destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The Romans stamped out um, not just Simon Bar Kokhba and his followers, but they, they, they came in with a, a, um, a great force and, and, and killed many people in Jerusalem and, and kicked out the Jews of Jerusalem um, uh, entirely. <laughs> so the Romans were, came in and said, well, no Jews can live here at all. And they renamed it to a Roman name, Capitolina. So for a long time, all this because of a messianic figure in the time of Paul, which is before Simon Bar Kokhba, but they, the Jewish leaders knew this could happen. And uh, so that's going to be part of why someone like Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a leader, a highly respected man, also a Roman citizen, so he's got status socially, uh, someone like that is going to be authorized by the priesthood in Jerusalem to go and, I don't know, cause mayhem. He oversees the, the stoning of Stephen. When we do our topic on persecution and martyrdom, we'll read that. But he, he's, he supervises the stoning of Stephen, and that was illegal. The Romans did not permit the Jews to perform capital punishment. It was illegal. Uh, if you wanted somebody uh, killed for crimes, you went to the Romans, and they would crucify them if they felt that was needed. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we know Stephen was stoned to death, and even though the Romans would not have approved that. So, uh, in Acts, Paul is on the path to, um, to Damascus, sent by the priests in Jerusalem, and if you remember what it says in, uh, in Acts 9, which we read before last week, uh, he was going there to do what? He was going there to, to arrest Jews, or Jewish Christians, uh, from the synagogues and, and take them back to Jerusalem. Who knows what their fate would have been? But he had the authority to uh, civilly arrest people, um, apprehend them. Okay. So, uh, so we, did talk, uh, we did talk about the conversion of, of Saul. And uh, now, he, from then, he goes from being the great representative of those who hate the church to now he's called by Christ, directly by Christ, to be the, a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ to the world. All right. That's quite a conversion. That's not just a little bit converted. <laughs> that's not just a, that's not a, you know, let's keep it secret to ourselves conversion. You're going to go from being this well-known hater of the church, persecutor of the church, killer of Christians, to being an apostle. Naturally, the first apostles were suspicious of this. Right? So you say, but Ananias in Damascus had also an epiphany, literally, a Christophany. Christ came to Ananias and said, 
uh, there's a man, Saul, who I'm sending to you. And, uh, and Ananias argues with the Lord a little bit, as we're prone to do, and said, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure, God? Um, because that, I've heard about him, and he's bad. And, uh, and Paul said, no, he's going to be my mouthpiece, my instrument. And, uh, and of course, God throws in that line, I'm going to show him uh, that, that he will suffer for the kingdom, too. So, um, so Paul is an apostle. He's not just an He's not self-appointed. I think that's very important. And since today's topic is going to be ecclesiology, church and ministry, what is the doctrine of the church? What does the Bible teach about church and, uh, and the ministry of the church? It is an important subject to know that, uh, that, that pastors or ministers of the gospel are not self-appointed. That's an important theme that is relevant today. You know, we don't send ourselves. Okay. Uh, now, usually, uh, we are sent or called by the church, by God, the Holy Spirit, through the church. It's normally how that is done, but uh, but not always. <laughs> so Paul, Saul, is called and ordained by none other than Jesus Himself, uh, directly. Directly, without any media, like the church in between, you know, directly. But he doesn't immediately go uh, from Ananias' house uh, to the streets preaching. He spends uh, a few years right after that um, in a uh, sabbatical. <laughs> or, 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 or what's the word I'm trying to think of? Yeah, like a sabbatical. He goes and spends three years in Arabia, of all places. Right, he goes to Arabia, uh, maybe so that he can be alone <laughs> and left alone. Uh, there were Jews in Arabia, all right, and 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 I don't know if yet, but there were Christians in Arabia, but I don't know if they were there yet. But but for whatever reason, Paul goes from Syria, Damascus, to I don't know. I don't want to say he went to hiding, but he went to Arabia for three years. What's he doing there? Most likely he's studying and making application, making sure that he's got the prophets and the Torah, the, what we call the Old Testament, and can identify how Jesus Christ is there. Um, you know, Jesus himself says at the end of Luke's gospel, after the resurrection, um, when, uh, when, when he goes to the... So it's the day of resurrection, it's the day of Easter. That day, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, um, and he appears to them, and they don't recognize him. And they, he's saying, so what's going on? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? We thought he was the one who was to come, but the Romans nailed him to a cross um, Furthermore, our women amazed us. <laughs> you know, they, they're not sure if they can trust the women in the first century. Um, there is a bit of a, a, a thing about that. In fact, I mean, um, that is actually a very good reason to trust the historical reliability of the Gospels. Because who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? The women. Now, um, they go, they see the empty tomb, they hear from the angel, Mary Magdalene, meets Jesus in the garden, and, uh, which is also significant, in a garden, garden of Eden. She meets the new creator, the new creation, Jesus, the risen Jesus, 
and they go to the apostles and say, this is what happened. Peter and John run to the tomb. They see it for themselves. Um, in the first century, okay, in that time, and in Jewish culture, but this would be true in Gentile culture too, women were not considered reliable. Um, they were, you, so you couldn't, a woman could not be uh, a witness in a court. So if I were making up, if, if the Gospels were fiction, as some skeptics will say, if the Gospels are fictional accounts, it's highly unlikely that they would write that in such a way that the women would be the first witnesses because culturally that would be very, very um, bewildering, puzzling. You know, so, so anyway, that's just maybe, um, I don't even know why I went there with the, but oh yes, Emmaus. So the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus tell Jesus that, have you not heard? Um, our women amazed us because they said that he's risen from the dead. And as they walk to Emmaus, Jesus walks with them. And what Luke's gospel tells us, the end of Luke's gospel, what Luke tells us is that Jesus explained to them from the law and the prophets, how all these things were written about him. So when you read the Old Testament, it is not just interesting history. It, it is. It's not just legal material. It's not just, um, you know, where we can maybe get some object lessons from it. It is a Christological book, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the church's book, right? It's the church's book. So, um, uh, in, in, the, in the Christian-Jewish relationship world, even to this day, that is a bit of a tension. Uh, did the, do the, does the church today appropriate, like cultural appropriation, the Old Testament? Is that appropriate? Well, the cre historic Christian answer is that, well, it's a book about Jesus, so yes, it's appropriate. That the Law and the Prophets are about me. Okay, so when you read the Law and the Prophets, or you hear preaching on it, if it doesn't talk about Jesus, they're missing the point somehow. It's about Jesus. So, uh, so Jesus tells them that. So it's very, very good thought here that when Paul, after his conversion, leaves Ananias' house, spends three years in Arabia, uh, he's, he's very likely preparing himself uh, to, uh, to, for his ministry. We don't really know exactly. It's a silent, silent period. But then he, then he does... And very soon he becomes very central to the apostolic band. So you've got the, you've got the 12, because they replaced Judas. You have the 12. Um, who's leader of that? If there is a leader of the 12, probably Peter, James, and John. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So you have those established 12 who went with Jesus and his family who knew him and heard his whole ministry, witnessed the resurrection, they're pretty um, s settled as the apostolic leaders of the church. Saul, Paul, is like one untimely born, he says of himself. He comes in and, uh, and he's probably not immediately accepted or trusted. And if he is trusted, he's probably going to be considered, well, you really should be second tier. You weren't there. Uh, Paul doesn't accept that. And through his epistles, an interesting side note, when you read the epistles of Paul, notice how frequently 
he defends his, his office as apostle. I am an apostle. So therefore, uh, my words are the words of God. He says that uh, numerous times throughout his epistles, which suggests that he had some resistance on that point. Uh, so now we know a little more about, about Paul. Uh, let's see, how are we doing? Okay, I'm going to move. We're now in Acts 20, and um, uh, we're going to read the words of Paul, starting at verse 17, verse, uh, till um, verses, well, let's see, maybe 35 or so. Okay, 17 through 35 or so. I'll just read, I'll, I'll read part of it. Verse 17, Acts 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Uh, Turkey, right, Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks, Gentiles, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Remember the words of Jesus to Ananias, I will show him what sufferings he must endure for my name. He knows, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him, that imprisonment and afflictions await me, wherever I go. <laughs> More on that later. Uh, 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Who did he receive his ministry from? Jesus. Okay. There's, you know, he, this is him making it clear again that, uh, that he is called. You can listen to me. I mean, he's not boasting. It's not a boast in himself. He's just trying to make it clear to folks that you, you can listen to me. <laughs> I've been called by Jesus. Okay. So, uh, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's the second time he says, I did not shrink in this short space, right? First, he says uh, er earlier, I, what? Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And now in verse um, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Meaning, I know I'm going to be imprisoned. I know I'm going to be beaten. I know I'm going to be a martyr. And I probably will never see you again. But notice, I did not shrink from telling you everything you need to know. Everything beneficial and everything profitable for, for your salvation. I did not shy away, and I won't shy away, Paul's, Paul's saying. Which is another way of saying, don't you shy away. <laughs> don't you shy away from 
um, as he says in verse 27, uh, declaring to you the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. This is um, when uh, the church today, how, how good a job does the church today or through history, how, does, how good a job does the church do in declaring the whole counsel of God? Not just our favorite topics or our, our pet topics or not just the cultural war topics, but what the whole counsel of God. That is a, a, a lesson for the church of all time that there's a lot to teach, not just one or two hot potatoes. Not to say that we shouldn't talk about hot potatoes, but, uh, but the whole counsel of God. This is why, um, uh, you know, I'll just say it, because uh, Pastor Rody's not here, so I don't want to embarrass him. I think our pastor does a good job of that, okay? Because uh, sometimes he says things that aren't necessarily <laughs> popular or you know or, or he, he's not he does not shrink from telling the whole counsel of God he's human right but uh, but that's a lesson for the church don't shrink from telling the whole counsel of God in season as Paul says in another place in season out of season when it's com- uh, when it's comfortable when it's uh, uh, popular and when it isn't um, using wisdom and and judgment about how to do that of naturally. Okay. The whole counsel of God. Uh, that is another reason I will also add that I personally, in my pastoral ministry, in my years serving in churches, I had a congregation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then one in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. That's what I did as pastor of those places before I came to Concordia, Irvine. And I, like many pastors in the Lutheran Church, but not all, but like many pastors in the Lutheran Church, I followed the discipline of preaching according to the, to the, to the lectionary, the, that, that schedule or uh, that list of readings that are appointed for the Sundays of the year. Not, not slavishly, I don't, that's not a law from God that we must do that, it's, uh, not slave to it, deviated here or there, but I tried, my pastoral ministry, I tried to discipline myself to follow the lectionary most of the time. Why? Why? Not because I feel like it's, uh, it's uh, a divine mandate. I just think it's good. <laughs> I think it's a good habit. I think, it's, I think it's, and it helps the pastor preach the whole counsel of God. It goes through, especially, I mean, there's two kinds of lectionaries. There's what's called the three-year and there's the one-year. But either one, it, it, doesn't, it, it does not allow the pastor to be the total master of his topics, of the subject matter that he will talk about. He, he, he's disciplined, so, oh, okay, I have to preach on the Holy Spirit, have to, because it's Pentecost. I told you in a previous class that I had a student tell me in a paper, she wrote about, um, about the Holy Spirit, I guess, and she said something in the paper about not, uh, that the church really kind of ignores this. And the, the teaching about the now some churches talk about the Holy Spirit constantly, but in her experience, the church hardly ever talks about the Holy Spirit, and she didn't really know much, and she thought that shouldn't be, should not be. And uh, I, I pointed out gently in my comments, so well, you know, in in my pastoral practice, that's one reason why I followed the lectionary because I'm for sure at least once a year going to preach 
We're going to read the scriptures. We're probably going to sing hymns about the Holy Spirit. Okay. The whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Not just uh, the things we're really interested in. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I'll read a couple more verses and then pause again. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his, of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I'll keep going. Um, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. May as well finish the chapter. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. There's a lot, a lot to say here. So, um, where did I want to... Talked about the shrinking, the whole counsel of God. Let's just start with verse 28. Okay, pay careful attention to yourselves. Um, on one hand, uh, we're all very good at that. I pay attention to myself constantly, right? You do too. I'm always thinking about myself um, and how, and, and when I think about you, it's usually in terms of how you relate to me <laughs> or, or something. We're, we are selfish. We are, uh, due to our corrupted nature, we are like that, right? Sinful nature. Um, we are very self-oriented. Um, uh, uh, some theologians define original sin as, uh, using a Latin term, in curvata se, curved in on yourself. Like a, like a fetus, right? A fetal position. You're curved in on yourself. Yeah, so pay attention to yourselves might seem like not good advice for a Christian to give. But um, he's talking to... Who's he talking to? He's talking to the leaders of the church, and he's telling them uh, to watch themselves. Okay? So he's talking here about their lives, their conduct, their behavior, their moral standing, and their doctrine. Okay? And, and so uh, that will come up again. Before I go any further, I want to, I want to talk about terminology, because I said this was going to be partly about ecclesiology and church and ministry. Um, so, remember verse, verse 17, 20, verse 17, uh, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. 
Okay, that's who? The elders. I want to think of that word. Elder. Okay, the elders of the church. Then in verse, I think, 28, he says, yeah, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which is um, like sheep, right? Okay, so all the flock and uh, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's three terms there. There's the word elder, there's the word flock, and then there's the word overseer. And they're talking about the, he's talking about the same people. He's talking to the same people. Um, in our, um, so the word flock implies a shepherd. If you are caring for the flock, what are you? You're the shepherd. A shepherd is, uh, what's the English word? Uh, so, um, pastor. The word shepherd in the New Testament, unless it's talking about literally people that work with sheep. But in here, he's not. When he talks about the flock of God, he's not talking about lambs. Okay, actual. He's talking about people, and so he's calling them pastors. You're taking care of the flock, you're pastors. So, the terminology is elder, pastor, overseer. Overseer is, um, is the same word for bishop. So, past, elder, pastor, bishop, the same people. Elder, pastor, bishop, the same people. Three words, three titles, not three different offices or three different people. Okay. Um, overseer, uh, the word, uh, the Greek word for that is episkopos, from which you get the word episcopal or episcopalian or episcopacy. Uh, episkopos means to uh, skopos, to look, epi, over, to look over, to oversee. Okay. So when you see overseers, in the English translation, in, in Acts, when you see overseers, you could just in your mind, if you want, um, uh, stick in there the word bishop, substitute the word bishop. Now, I'm going to talk about why that matters and what's relevant about it, but I want you to get the terminology. The, so think bishops, pastors, bishops, elders. Um, uh, so, so churches have kind of argued throughout history, and even today, churches argue about uh, structuring the church. Uh, should there be bishops? Uh, are all pastors equal? What are elders anyway? We use, it does get confusing because in our context in the Lutheran Church in America, we use the word elder in a specific way that is not the same way that the New Testament does. There's nothing wrong with the way we use it. Uh, no problem. What we do with elders and uh, boards of elders is all very good, appropriate, godly, and uh, useful. But when it says in verse 17 that he called the elders to, his, to, the, to, to him, he's not talking about what we would call an elder in the church. He's talking about pastors, that is, bishops. Okay? So the word elder in the New Testament, the word elder, uh, the Greek word for that is presbyteros, which means, um, uh, it, means, it, means it means old people. <laughs> it, means, it means elders. Um, uh, but you, hear, but you see in that, right, the word Presbyterian. Okay, I'll get back to that. When I was, uh, back in the olden days, when I was a seminary student, um, before the invention of sliced bread, that was back then, I, uh, I, I had a job as a seminary student, I had a job at the mall uh, at Lenscrafters. We'll get your glasses to you in about an hour. And I was the guy 
I was the guy, I didn't, I'm not an optometrist, but I was the guy who fitted you for your frames. And, uh, but I remember one thing, I remember one word, because we would get the prescription from the optometrist for the person, and I would, I didn't, I just literally handed it to the lady or man who ground up the lenses. I, I was that. And one of the words I remember, if you are an optometrist, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the words I remember is the word presbyopia. And because I was a study, student of Greek at the time, opia, op, that means old eyes. It's literally what that Greek word, presbyopia, and it, it means age-related uh, uh, farsightedness. Okay. Presby, presbyter, old, elder. Now, Christian churches, uh, even today, disagree on how the church should, should operate. On the one hand, you have churches that believe in an episcopacy or an episcopal form of church government. That means they have bishops. Okay? So who am I talking about here? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for sure. Um, Greek Orthodox, although they do it differently. Um, Methodists, United Methodists, they have bishops. And, and, and probably, well, some Lutherans, okay. But they don't all say it the same way. But um, let's, say, let's say in the Catholic Church, um, what is a bishop there? The bishop is the head of a region, and in his region, there will be numerous churches, numerous congregations, and in each congregation, there will be an individual pastor slash priest. And uh, so the bishop governs those churches, spiritually governs those churches, and they each have their priest. So they, those priests, uh, have an ecclesiastical overseer, their bishop. Okay. So when a priest dies or retires, who chooses the next priest for that parish? The bishop. Okay. Now, he, if he's smart, he consults the congregation. But, uh, but they don't do like we do. They don't vote and elect their next pastor. They, they might have some role, but it's more of an assent, not a decision. <laughs> the decision is the bishops. Okay, so that's a different way of governing the church. Now, why that is an issue is because the Catholic Church insists that it must be that way, that you must do it that way. Then you have churches like, uh, like the Presbyterians. They have a, I mean, when I talk about episcopacy, episcopacy, I forgot to mention the Episcopal Church. Same, same Anglicans, the Episcopal Church, the Anglicans, they also do this. Then you have uh, Presbyterians on another end, and they actually name their church after their belief about church governance, Presbyteries. Now, they think of elders, Acts 20, they think of elders as something different than pastors. I'm going to show you, or have tried to show you why I think they're wrong, but, they're, but they would say that elders, a group of, not a bishop, not a singular bishop governing like a monarch, but a, a college, a community of elders who are both, some are pastors, some are lay people, but together as a group they make all the decisions. Then you have, uh, and the next bit is, um, where, where some Lutherans fit, and, and that is congregationalism. That's probably the most democratic approach. So that means that the congregation governs the thing. Okay? They make the decisions, they call their pastors, they, if there's any church discipline to be done, it's the congregation in some way that is doing it. So it's congregational. 
uh, very democratic. Everybody has a vote. Um, the Missouri Synod is, is congregational, but not totally. Um, the, the important thing, doctrinally, is that Lutheran churches, the Lutheran theology, uh, based on Acts 20 and others, is that there is no divinely mandated way to structure the church. You have to have pastors. Nobody, you have to have pastors. And you have to have people <laughs> to be a church, right? Shepherds, sheep. Uh, but, but Lutheran theology says, but you have a tremendous amount of liberty uh, as Christians to decide, well, how are we going to get things done? We have to get things done, so there has to be a procedure, um, but there's no divinely uh, commanded uh, methods. We don't have to have like a monarch bishop, um, but Lutheran theology says, but you can do that. So that's why you have Lutheran churches in Germany and in Scandinavia that do have bishops. And, and maybe even in the U.S., but, uh, but then you have congregational. So um, what is the Lutheran doctrine of church and ministry in terms of how things should be done? There, there really isn't one set way. We think we have, you have liberty. That doesn't mean that all ways are equally good. You use, your, use your judgment. Okay. I would make this argument that it is not divinely mandated that we do any one particular way based on Acts 20 where Paul refers to elders, pastors, and bishops in one to one group of people. I don't think he's talking about three levels of people in the same room. Maybe you could take it that way. But uh, because of this and other passages, this, it's all the same. Okay, so that's very important. That means to say, so if we're congregational, and the LCMS tries to be that, if we're a congregational church body uh, in terms of how we run, um, we call ourselves a synod. LCMS, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're not, I'm from Missouri, but that's just coincidental. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's where, why are we the Missouri Synod? Because the Saxon immigrants who came over in the 19th century settled largely in, in Perry County, uh, Missouri. <laughs> but, uh, but, okay, but what's the word synod? S, it's not synod, S-E-N-A-T-E, it's not that. Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, synod. Um, we call ourselves that, and the word means to walk together. We're going to walk together. Um, so though we are a congregational church body, we're not totally congregational in the sense that individual congregations can just go any direction they want about everything because we're walking together. Now, we have agreed to do that, um, but it's a human arrangement. So if your church doesn't want to walk together, you're free to leave. But we as a group have decided that we're going to walk together as a synod, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and there are others, but we're going to walk That means that one pastor cannot, does not have authority in another church exactly, but that we are working together, all our congregations, hopefully, in the best, best world. All right? So uh, that's, some of the, that's some of the terminology. Now, when we talk about ministry, there are other words in the Bible. Um, there's the word deacon, which, uh, which I don't think we'll, we'll do depth in depth today, but when I talk about Stephen, I will. There's the word deacon, and some churches have deacons, um, just simply, simply put. The word deacon means servant, one who serves. Uh, oh, I mean, the word ministry means to serve. <laughs> so a deacon, um, and we know from Acts 
um, that the deacons were had a particular kind of service that was different from the apostles. Okay, but we'll more on that. Do we have to have deacons? Well, um, uh, we have to do the things deacons did, but do but we can. Uh, Lutheran theology says we can structure that however is most beneficial for a given setting. So whether you have an office of deacon, it's a good idea. It's an apostolic practice, but I don't think we're commanded to do that. Okay. So you have de- some churches have deacons um, and, and you know de- designated persons to do the work of deacons uh, or deaconess. Now Lutheran church uh, doesn't often have deacons per se, but we do have deaconesses, deaconesses. Um, just there's a lot of historical reasons why that's true, but we have deaconesses, and a uh, a deaconess. Uh, Romans 16. Okay, uh, the, the word deaconess is is in the Bible. There is a deaconess in the Bible. There's not a lot of them mentioned by name, but there's one. Um, uh, you can look it up later if you want. Romans chapter 16, the very end. St. Paul is saying, uh, at the end of that chapter, he's saying, okay, greet this person and that person and that person and Phoebe the deaconess. So we know her name. We don't know anything about her except that she was in Rome and her name was Phoebe and she was a deaconess. Use that word. And, um, and the early church had deaconesses and, and throughout history there have been deaconesses. And so a, deacon is a, fe- a deaconess is a female deacon. Okay, so when I tell you more about a deacon, when we do Stephen... Uh, that's what a deacon says, and we, we, have, we do have that office in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. All right, I'm going to pause. Uh, I've, I've been just you know, like a train going. Any, any, any commentary or questions? Any challenges? I got one. Uh, there's two. I was just wondering. Um, so you said that he, after he was after Paul was converted, he was somewhere for three years. So about how old is he here? Well, um, I'm 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 not aware of a biblical answer to that. The tradition is that he was about the same age as Jesus. Here. Uh, oh, and in at this spot in the in the book. Um, I, you know, I don't know. He's, he's probably, so if he, if he's about the same age as Jesus, then when Jesus, if Jesus died at about 33, and if Paul was converted shortly after Pentecost, um, he might have been 35, let's say, uh, three years away. I mean, he might be 40 or 40. I mean, I'm sure someone has done chronology and could give a more, but let's think of him here as in his 40s, and, uh, and he dies in uh, the year, uh, probably the year 64, 65. And we know that historically. We know, at least, we have very good reason to believe that St. Paul was martyred in between the great fire in Rome, 63, 64, and something else that happened in 68. I forget what the other. And so, uh, so, so we think Paul died, he's probably 65 years old. So here, I don't know, did, I mean, here, he, I'm going to say 40-ish. But it'd be a number of years after. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, and, and at this point, he has been doing, he has been planting churches, too. So it might even be late, we could say late. I mean, I, like I said, I'm sure someone could give, has done the chronology and timeline better than my brain has. But, uh, I mean, he is, this isn't immediately after his conversion. So he's been planting churches, too. Um, I mean, he mentions in here being three years with them. And so, yeah, 40, 45, somewhere. So my question is, um, I'll say first, you know, I hold with the LCMS stance on having a male fill the role of ministry. But how much does it have to do with the fact that uh, men have fulfilled that role in that, as you stated, in scriptural times, women were considered less than a full person? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll talk about that. Okay. Um, okay, you're right. There was a cultural element to why in the early church you probably weren't going to have, at least in Judaism, you weren't going to have female. I, I want to just point out, though, historically, in terms of history of the world, priestesses had been around for thousands of years. I mean, many religions had female priests, priestesses. So in the Greco-Roman world, where Paul was, like in Ephesus, there were priestesses all over the place. And you had these Gentiles converting. Um, so it's not as if no one had ever thought of that. Um, but you're right, as I said, in, in Judaism, uh, in the first century, um, definitely not defending this at all. But, uh, but yes, uh, there was this uh, idea. It's a sexist thing, right? It's an idea that women couldn't be, tr- because what? Because women are emotional and men are reasonable. I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not teaching you that, but <laughs> that would be sort of... So I, 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 to answer your question, yes, there is probably some level of cultural um, thing going on there. However, <clears throat> uh, you know, even though the culture of Judaism in the first century had that uh, un- unfortunate view of women, I'm going to say that the early Christians didn't. Or at least they were breaking away from that pretty sharply because of Jesus and even Paul. So uh, a lot of modern skeptics say Paul's a misanthropist or uh, misogynist. It's a big topic I can't do right now, but I don't think that's fair. But Jesus clearly has um, women followers and prominent women followers. Uh, You know, in one, one place in the Gospels it says that uh, the women were funding the thing. <laughs> I mean, Jesus didn't make money. Okay? He had donors. And uh, in one place in the Gospels, people like Mary Magdalene, rich women, were, were funding the apostles. And they're going around with them. Okay? And uh, so assisting. Um, uh, and Jesus' own, there's not a lot of passages this way, but there are some very important passages where Jesus speaks to women and does so on a very... A respected, a respectable way, which would have been, at the time it was written, shocking. The Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus goes and talks to her. Well, she's got three strikes. There's three reasons why Jesus should be avoiding that woman. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she's, she's a public sinner. And yet he does. And he has a theological conversation with her. 
I mean, he's respecting her as a mind, right? She has thoughts. She has opinions. He's not just sort of, okay, go make me a sandwich, right? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's talking to her on, a, on, an, on an equal level. And his own disciples were, thought that was odd. Don't do that. So, so I, I, and there's other, other places too. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Mary, right? His own mother. Uh, I mean, who is it? Who do the gospels say are at the cross? The women, including Mary, his mother. The women were there. You talk about lions for the faith. You talk about boldness for the faith. While the disciples, the twelve, even Peter, who, uh, who uh, boasted that he would never leave Jesus. And Thomas, in another passage, said, hey, let's go with him to die. Where are they? Okay. They run like cockroaches when the lights come on. And, uh, but the women are there, and, uh, and they're not just there. Uh, he's talking to them, and he speaks to his mother and says, take, uh, John, take care of her. Take, I mean, that is a, you don't see much of that kind of thing in ancient literature. I got more, but go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. I was just thinking, though, along those lines that, you know, women weren't maybe, I'll ask the question, I don't know this, I'll ask the guy who knows. Women at that time, because they were nothing, probably were also freer to be a believer, and therefore the, I've always, the apostles needed to hide themselves away sort of to protect um, the carrying on of the gospel, whereas the women who are raising their children, hopefully, and, you know, like Timothy comes to mind, that they were, they were freer to be out and about, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you're being very uh, generous to the apostles. <laughs> when you say that they were hiding so that they could be safe to do the ministry, I'm not sure that's why they were hiding. You know, when, when it's on Easter Eve, John 20, the disciples are, what does it say? It says the disciples were hiding in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Okay, they're not prepping. <laughs> they're, they're shaking. And it's the women who go to the tomb, and the disciples are locked in a room. The women go to the tomb to treat the body of Jesus, which was a woman's task, but they don't shrink from it, Paul. And they, and they witness it. They run. They tell the men. Um, again, why would the disciples put the women, if they were making this up, if this were fiction, and they're just trying to write this to be famous or whatever, they, they, you wouldn't write it that way. You wouldn't write it making the disciples look like idiots and the women as the bold lions of the faith. That, wouldn't, that, would, be, that would be counterproductive in that culture. So I, I think that's actually a pretty good evidence that, this, that it happened. <laughs> that's what happened, and they just recorded that's what happened. And so the Gospels are, are portraying the women. It's not fictional. They don't have a social agenda. They're just telling that the women here are not seen as secondary, second class. They, um, you know, Paul himself talks about in Christ there is no male, no female, no Jew and Gentile, slave nor free. And in the early church, in the early church, uh, yes, there were a lot of women joining the church. Um, it was, like today, there were probably more women joining churches than, than men in the first century. Uh, although I don't know if it was quite as stark as, as maybe sometimes today. But, um, because the church in the first century was a... The, here's another part of my point, part of my answer to the question about women's ministry, which I may not get completely answered today. But uh, um, 
why did so many women join the church in the first century, first, second century? Why did so many women join the church? Uh, not just women, but, uh, but slaves of both sexes. Not just slaves, but foreigners uh, of both. Why? Because the church honored them as humans, which they didn't get in Roman culture. Right? So if you are oppressed... Okay? If you are oppressed by your society and culture and you find there's an institution that has a pretty attractive message and in which you're going to be treated as a human being, you're going to join it. <laughs> you're more likely to join it. You're not going to stick around. So in Roman culture, uh, it was not illegal for a man to murder his daughters or wife. It was not a crime in Roman culture. Okay? He could do this because he's the pater familias. I mean, for, the, for Roman, Roman society, uh, he owned his family. There was property. Okay? So, <clears throat> so I mean, uh, so to, to have a, an institution come along in which women are not seen as property, are not treated as um, subhuman. Um, now, right, I'm, the culture didn't immediately shift to the level of equality that we might want to see, but it did have a huge break with its cultural surroundings. Um, now, Paul does also talk in his epistles about uh, men uh, in the office of the ministry. And maybe we'll pick up with that. I have a few more things to say. Uh, how much time do I have? I always forget. I have five minutes. I have to qu quit now. Okay, right now. Okay, all right. Hey, thank you for your time and attention. <laughs> we'll see you next week, and we'll do more of this, and we'll probably talk about healing.